0: This time around, I was delighted to welcome back to the show... ...the superb Peps McRae. And it is a classic. But, before that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast... ...is proudly supported by Arc Maths. Now, one of the biggest changes to my planning and teaching over the last five years... ...is my increased awareness of the importance of providing retrieval opportunities for my students. In the past, all my thoughts and efforts went into planning questions, activities and explanations. In other words, stuff to help students get something into their heads. What was severely lacking was opportunities to help my students get that knowledge out again. By assuming that just because students could do something they'd just been taught, it must have been learnt, I found myself in a vicious spiral of teaching something, moving on, and then having to teach it again and again and again when students had frustratingly forgotten something that they once knew. The problem is, of course, that scheduling in retrieval opportunities is difficult, especially when each child in a class has different priorities in terms of what they need practice on. Mirren needs more practice of straight line graphs, whereas Josh needs to work on factorising quadratic expressions. What's the solution? Well, step forward, arc maths. ArcMaths is an app that's currently available for the iPad, but with hopes of expansion to other devices in the future. The entire Key Stage 3 and 4 curriculum is broken down into 1,550 slightly different skills and pieces of knowledge called Microtopics. Each Microtopic has a set of associated questions which test that particular skill or knowledge. How are the questions chosen, I hear you ask? Well, there are 12 questions in a session which are specifically chosen for each pupil. Question one is a times table multiplication, question two is a times table division, question three and four are revision questions, and then it starts to get really clever. The schedule of spaced practice dictates what questions are selected for the remaining questions. Forgotten microtopics appear with greater frequency. New microtopics are introduced if space allows. What about differentiation? Well, each session is specific to the attainment level of that pupil. Individual weaknesses are addressed immediately and also subsequently. So Mirren's session is different to Josh's session. What about teacher workload? Because this is the big hassle when you're trying to do this manually. Well, questions are chosen, created, delivered and marked automatically by the app. Follow-up practice questions then self-generate. Gaps in knowledge are recorded and tracked automatically. And pupils create their own accounts so administration is kept to the minimum. How do students answer their answers? Well, this is where the app gets even smarter with incredibly impressive handwriting recognition technology. Being able to draw square root signs, write indices and fractions and complex algebraic expressions without having to go anywhere near a keyboard is a massive step forward for maths online learning tech tools. You can also draw the diagrams too, much as if it was a worksheet. Now, ArcMaths is designed for the classroom. It could be a 10 minute activity suitable for a lesson starter with students working on their own devices. No instructions are needed. They can just get cracking. Or the app could be used at home with students building it into their d- daily or weekly routine outside of the classroom. Now, I've been playing around with the app for a while and it is brilliant. It can even recognize my dodgy handwriting. The app is built on research that will be very familiar to listeners of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. Bjork, Rodiger, and Roer, surrounding memory, and even the uncluttered interface would please John Sweller, allowing students to focus purely on the mathematics. To find out more, just visit arceducation.co.uk, and that's ARC with a C, not a K. And ARC are currently looking for schools to try out their app for free. So if you're interested, there's a link at the top of the show notes page of this podcast episode where you can register your interest in a free trial. Check out ARC Maths, ARC with a C, and help your students remember what they once knew. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more about the sponsor packages available. And there's a link to that in the show notes. But back to today's conversation with Peps McRae. Now, as we found out last time he was on, Peps has quite the CV. Are you ready for this one? He's a former fast-track maths teacher and senior lecturer in mathematics education. He's been a national curriculum advisor for the DFE, external examiner at the OU, and is author of the wonderful Lean Lesson Planning, Memorable Teaching, and now Motivated Teaching. Not only that, though, PEPs has not one, not two, but three master's degrees in engineering design, educational leadership, and educational research, and holds fellowship awards from the University of Brighton and the Young Academy. He is now Dean at the Ambition Institute, something that we speak about at the start of our conversation. And I can also testify that he's a good cook, which only adds to my jealousy. Pep's last appearance on the show back in November 2017 is in the top three of the most listened to episodes of all time, with well over 15,000 unique downloads. Back then we spoke about making teaching memorable. But this time around, we add a key piece to the puzzle of learning in the form of motivation with the release of Pep's new book, Motivated Teaching. So in a wide ranging interview, we covered the following things and much more besides. Firstly, why did Peps want to write about the subject of motivation and just how does he write so concisely? What surprised Peps during his research into motivation? And why is motivation such an important subject for teachers to understand? What is the relationship between attention and motivation? What's the role of fun and rewards in motivating students? And then the big one, what are the five core drivers of motivation? And crucially, how can teachers harness them in the classroom? Now, some sequels are a disappointment. I'm thinking Speed 2 Cruise Control, Matrix Reloaded, and of course, My Girl 2. But I'm pleased to say that the return of PEPs was certainly not. This conversation is jam-packed full of research-backed practical advice. And I absolutely love peps's take on motivation, that it determines what our students pay attention to and hence what they, what they are likely to remember and learn, thus beautifully complementing Dan Willingham's insight that memory is the residue of thought. I know you'll love this one. Just before we crack on, I wanted to remind you that my new online course with Joe Morgan entitled Marvelous Maths 2 Misconceptions, Methods and Mastery is now available for purchase. I use data from 20 million answers and student explanations from diagnostic questions to find the most pertinent, surprising and interesting misconceptions students hold. And then on comes Joe to suggest ways we can tackle them head on through methods, pedagogy and some incredible free resources. As well as doing this for the topics of decimals, coordinates and Pythagoras, we suggest a general approach to lesson planning that could be applied to all topics. There are over 100 videos and 100 cracking resources. I am so proud of this course and it should be the ideal CPD to take either individually or better still to work through as a department, perhaps even over the course of a year. Full details are available in the show notes, or you can go direct to craigbarton.podia.com, podia, and as ever, there's a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, enough of that. Without further ado, let me introduce Peps McRae. Now, regular listeners to the show may remember that last time he was on, Peps tried to restructure the interview and essentially take over my job mid-conversation. But I'll tell you what, listeners, I'm ready for that this time around enjoy i know you will and as ever i'll see you on the other side okay pep so first off welcome back to the show how's everything with you
1: good Craig. thank you very much for having me back it's very exciting like a double bill or second up whatever (laughs) it's called Return. Well, it's an
0: illustrious. That's it. It's an illustrious crowd. Not many get to come back on twice, but you're in. You're in the gang now. You're in the gang. And um, so, I was looking it up. Uh, twenty seventeen, November twenty seventeen. It was when you were last on the show, and it was a big hit of that. And a little little fact for you here. On my podcast page, that is one of my five episodes I recommend people start with if they're kind of brand new to the show. So straight away, this could be an anti-climb. Right? So people <laughs> need to lower their expectations. But what have you been up to? Because that's, that's nearly three years ago now. So yeah, give us a bit of a bit, bit of an overview. What's your life been like since then, Perhaps.
1: Yeah, so I've um, been working at Ambition Institute, which has been a fab. Uh, great organization, great people, like really uh, important mission working on, um, a big part of like the last year has been working on developing some materials for the early career framework. This has been super exciting. Uh, early career framework—I'm sure some of your listeners will be aware—is like a big step forward for the profession, providing an entitlement for teachers in uh, like the first two years of their profession to uh, some additional really high-quality training. Um, and so we've just been trying to support support that, and develop some good curriculum materials for that. Um, Outside of that, um been working on the next book, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, yeah, so we talked last in 2017, like pretty much as soon as I uh, got rid of that book, I started on this next one. And it, it's literally taken me the whole time <laughs> from, <laughs> from then till now. Um, so, yeah, been a bit of a slog, but like really happy to have got it out and be able to chat to you about it now.
0: Now, just in case we we don't kind of circle back around to Ambition Institute, uh, PEPs, just give us a bit, give listeners a bit of an overview. We touched upon it a little bit last time, but if people are, are new to this, well, what what is some of the work you do? And we, is there anything you'd recommend people really check out? Because you've put out a, f- a few absolutely incredible documents over the last few years. Well, what do you do and where should people start if they want to know a bit more?
1: Sure. So uh, Ambition Institute is a, um, what's the best way of trying to f- frame it? It's like a mix between a university, a charity, and a teaching school. We provide like sustained professional development programs for teachers and school leaders, um, and we work really hard to make sure that they're like, really rigorously evidence-informed, but also make a difference, as in like, change teacher and leader behavior and habits over the long term, because we know that's ultimately what makes a difference to pupil outcomes and experiences. Um, head over to the Ambition website. We've got lots of, like, a real range of programs, you know, from expert middle leaders to your master's in expert teaching uh, to the early career framework stuff um, and Harry Fletcher Woods course, which is the fellowship in teacher education for teacher educators. So, trying to really provide the system with everything they need in order to be able to like, move forward as a profession. Um, really exciting to be part of. Um, always going to be like more stuff coming out uh, of ambition, things to keep an eye on. Um, and over the last year or so, I suppose stuff to, to have a look at, um, maybe Hari's learning curriculum. So Harry and his cohort have written this, uh, like how to teach teachers about the science of learning document um, and iterated it a few times. So check that out. Um, I've also written a, like a short guide to learning how it works. So uh, yeah, you can check that out as well. Fantastic.
0: Superb. Um, now... Again, I'm I'm asking all my guests this, and this this may be well kind of a sign of the times, and I'll I'll look back and think I was getting a bit obsessed with this, but recording as we are towards the end of 2020, um, how's the year been for you? Peps, so obviously with with lockdown and stuff, has that affected your your working day? Were you, you travelling into the office much anyway? And what's what's your year been like?
1: Yeah, so interesting how well that question is going to age, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> we shall we shall see. It's probably aging better than we'd originally thought at the minute. Um, to, to be honest, my working life hasn't changed a huge deal. Um, you know, worked from home a fair bit before. Uh, Ambition is like a, a national organisation, and so it, it really didn't make a lot of sense for us to get together physically a lot of the time, especially when we're like so deeply steeped in just design work and um, mm. spend a lot of time from the, the laptop really uh, and that you can do that from anywhere um, what has changed is I've had an opportunity to spend a bit more time with my family so that's been really nice you know I imagine lots of us with families will look back on this as a bit of a golden period um kids are back at school now which you know is a huge relief so you it's know, <laughs> <laughs> been a joy but n- like no problem sending them back to their uh, to the schools now um, but Uh, Em has been around a bit more as well, which has been really nice. And so actually having to spend a bit more time with her has been a real pleasure
0: fantastic it's, it's funny I was trying to say to my wife that this is a golden period but we, we were up at what's about four fifteen this morning because Isaac I mean he's not the best of sleepers but with this clocks going uh, whichever way they've gone this has really messed him up and it doesn't feel quite so golden at the moment yeah. but yeah ho- hopefully it, it may do it at some point yeah. now the other thing perhaps I was going to say to you is I don't know if you remember this but last time you're on the show you kind of took over the interview in a little bit you were changing the structure around as we were going you were recommending a, you didn't want to answer certain questions <laughs> you were saying we'll come back to that i want to answer this first so i'm gonna to have to be now i'm a lot more experienced as a host perhaps you're uh yeah you're gonna have to just take a back seat friend, <laughs> and just just do things do things the way they come so i want to start with uh, your book which Good i've choice. got in front of me i was very uh, very lucky to receive a copy of this um, i'm a big big fan of it it's about motivation it's called motivated teaching so obvious first question what why motivation uh, perhaps what why was that an interesting subject for you
1: sure so um Came out of like spent a few years on that last book. Came on, did the podcast with you, talked about really um, how cognitive science could help us understand how memory worked and really like how learning worked, I suppose, and with a view to helping our pupils to develop a deeper understanding, but an understanding that lasted longer. Mm. Um, Came out of that book with like a you know real sense of okay, we're we're as a profession we're starting to pull together some ideas that are really useful here in terms of guiding our practice. But felt that there was, there was a, like a, a bit of a, a missing piece to the puzzle as well. It just sort of felt like it wasn't enough. It didn't explain enough for me. Um, if I was a teacher, it it just didn't have enough instructive power, as it were. And so, basically, just took like as with all my books, they sort of start as a bit of a thorn in my side. It's like oh, <laughs> there's there's something here that you know, there's a story that needs to be told. Um, don't quite know exactly what it is yet. Um, but just took the opportunity to dive into the literature for uh, probably a good solid like twelve months or so, just trying to read everything I possibly could around the fringes of the previous book. So the previous book was about like you know learning right at the like in, in the middle, and this was like what what's what needs to go around the edges of of learning in order to make learning happen. Um, spent a lot of time reading everything I could um, in the behavioral economics field. Uh, looking a little bit about looking at uh, some evolutionary psychology stuff uh, and then everything I could find on like motivation and behavioral science and of course psychology as well and the more I kind of dug around in that the more it became clear that motivation was the kind of concept that held all of this stuff together Um, you know the book went through a number of different titles during that first year, you know, from influential teaching to persuasive teaching to all kinds <laughs> of things, uh, which I'm glad I didn't go with in the end, but really like this this concept of motivation just, just seemed really right after a long time. Um, and then as soon as I kind of got that, that meant that I could like dive back into uh, that idea with much more fervor. So I was like, right, I understand this is all about motivation now. There are a number of fields pointing towards it. Now we dive deeper into the evidence we do have about motivation, we should be able to build something like a useful account that might be uh, useful for practitioners.
0: Got it. F- fa- fascinating. I'm um, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by by motivation myself. I did a little bit of reading for my, my first book, How I Wish I Taught Maths. Um and also as a kind of closet economist, um, I I was very fascinated by um behavioral economics in my final year at university. That was my what my dissertation was on. And it, what I love about motivation, as you say, is is quite a few of the fields have something to say about it, whether it's economics, whether it's psychology, sociology, um, and biology, and so on. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating subject. Subject. I'll tell you what, though, Peps. I have a question for you straight away here. Now, I, I had a go at you about this on the previous podcast. We, we seem to have the exact opposite approach to writing. My, my, my philosophy seems to be: why say something in ten words when you can say it in a hundred words? Whereas you seem to be kind of let's get it down to one word. So you've been you've been writing this for for three years. What you've been doing, like one word a day or something? Because this is you've gone concise again, right? This is a big thing for you, though, right? You want to distill everything into as few words as possible. Is, is that is that fair to say? Yes <laughs> <laughs> ah, very nice, very nice <laughs> and why is that? is it simply for for clarity, and I imagine it's it's quite hard right sometimes that it's it's easy just to keep prattling on like I do, whereas to really kind of distill it down that 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 must take some discipline
1: it, it would discipline yeah, well, it's just um. It, it, to be honest it's probably become a bit of an obsession <laughs> rather, than, <laughs> rather than anything else um, uh, um, it kind of started you know in the last or last podcast i think they talked a little bit about the fact i as a you know an engineer and mathematician uh, i've never really had the skill of communicating uh, wonderfully um, <laughs> either, either verbally or on paper and so i kind of found my found my way of communicating in a very to be a very kind of concise technical uh, approach and that's just seemed to work we seemed to work well for me and I enjoyed it um but yeah I, I I just love the I love the 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 kind of craft of it as it were and yeah so I I did spend like sort of three years or so working on this and it must have worked out to have been about like five hours a page something like that and each of the pages are pretty small you might be kind of less than a 100 words on each page and so it does work out to be quite a few minutes per word which is ridiculous but, <laughs> but you know i enjoy it yeah and i feel really satisfied at the end that i've crafted something that um is going to be useful and, and a pleasure to read it's a bit like um i suppose it's a bit like sculpture in some ways now that might be a you know pushing it a bit far but i uh, want to be sculptor you know i st- actually you know at one point during the uh, the three years i i had at least 100,000 words um, wow. But just like constantly then spending like a year and a half probably chipping away and chipping away and chipping away uh, until I'm left really with uh, like the bare bones like it was, hopefully there's no cruft in there at all. Um, and again, yeah, the idea is valuable um, and hopefully pleasurable to read.
0: Oh, it certainly is. I'm I'm very jealous of, of your approach um, to this peps and how you manage how me how you manage to pull it off. I'll, I'll tell you what fascinates me as well is so I always start when I when I get sent books, I always get the highlighter ready and go through. But I stopped with yours because I was just highlighting everything. It's like you've just Put in the highlights if that makes sense. You know, you've just you've got all those kind of killer sentences, and it's just one after another. So yeah, and for again, it's the old cliche, but for the time poor teacher, this is exactly what people need. Just there's no there's no filler in there. It's 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 all the good stuff. And I was also interested, perhaps when I was reading, I think in the acknowledgements at the end, you mentioned I think it was Nick, and what as somebody who read your book triggered a complete rewrite. And I'm always fascinated by that because I've 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 been in a similar situation myself, not with an entire. But with it, but with a chapter that I absolutely loved, and then somebody said, "No, let's crap that," and I had to, I had to completely change it. W- what was it? W- what did the book look like before? And what, what, what did Nick say that wasn't quite working?
1: Right. So yeah, uh, this was around about February time. The book was, I think, was already. Uh, at least at least 12 months late <laughs> for <From the laughs> people who pre-ordered it you know the year before i uh, kept pushing back a deadline <laughs> so apologies to all of you out there you know who you are <laughs> um but yes yeah, so i got to it's like right okay this is it you know it's done rewritten it so many times this must be like it sent it out to a few few trusted friends to for review and uh, yeah you know came back pretty positive um, a few little bits, you know, I don't really understand this. This could be more coherent. Um, but good old Nick Rose um, has just... Oh, Nick
0: Rose, nice, right? right. Friend of the podcast, yeah. okay.
1: Right, now it becomes clear, yeah. Nick, Nick Rose's, like, level of rigor is just insane. And so he, he, did, he took the time to do, like, a really thorough critique of it um, and came back with not only, like, a good critique, but some suggestions for how I could, like, make it even better. Uh, And so, like, hugely indebted to him for doing that. Um, Basically, uh, unless he'd done that, I would have just, like, tweaked it a little bit and then published it, you know, a month later, whereas, like, Nick convinced me that I needed to basically start from scratch again. So uh, pretty much ripped up the whole thing, was like, okay, going to give myself six months try and like get you know, a couple of hours a day before the kids wake up every day and just like rewrite it again from scratch and i think uh, yeah it was in retrospect it was worth it during the t- during that time it was pretty painful but yeah thank you nick
0: and what what was it perhaps was it a kind of structural change and uh, the reason i ask is because it's got a really tight structure we'll talk about it later but you build a lot of the book around these these five core drivers of motivation were they were they not in there beforehand
1: they, they they were they were to a certain extent. Although there was there was six. There was a few tweaks around the driver and some of the language and stuff. But the the main change was in the first the foundations, the first three chapters. Um mm. originally I suppose because I'd spent so much time in, in the evidence, it ended up being like quite a technical dense uh, right. like sort of setup. Um, which is kind of fine for building the logic, but you know, this isn't a, a PhD project that I was doing and so Actually, um, what it helped me realize is that I just need to like take a step back and try and communicate the concepts that that a, you know a reader, a teacher needs to know. And so, actually, you know, I uh, stripped out like loads and loads of the, the kind of evidence from those first three and just tried to first three chapters and just tried to paint a much more coherent, like develop, like building of understanding of the key concepts in there, um, there uh, and. You know, stripped out a load of the evidence, but some of that evidence, uh, like, like quite a lot within the book, uh, isn't isn't that robust anyway. So, actually, n- no huge loss. A lot of it was kind of grounded in some ideas from evolutionary psychology, which you know definitely contested. And so, probably a good call in the end to just like leave some of that uh, further down the line.
0: Got it, got it, flipping it. Yeah, tough process, but yeah, no, as I say, it's, it's a f- fascinating read. Um. I'm interested as well, and th- this may be difficult to answer perhaps because you, you're so, you're kind of three years into this and, and so immersed in the subject of mo- motivation, but can you imagine, can you remember back to what your preconceptions were about the subjects before you came into research and it was, was there any be- like long-standing beliefs you'd, you'd held about motivation?
1: Oh, that's a tough question, Craig. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like unpicking on, on your, your memory to try and remember what you were like, yeah. It's, I think it's really hard for anyone who writes a book maybe, unless mm. you've written a book that's something like you know everything I wish I knew and you'd recorded your <laughs> your previous <Yeah. laughs> thoughts you know so maybe like for someone like yourself you might be, answer, be able to answer but I think that, that's really hard and um, if I had to guess I imagine I thought much more about motivation as a kind of like a direct influence on others as in mm. like you know it's about encouragement about maybe incentivizing others about that interaction. like one-on-one rather than like what has come become clear through the book that it's much more about uh trying to influence the situation the context in which uh, somebody finds themselves in terms of like having much greater effect got it
0: got it now this answer to this question may well be the same perhaps but was was, what what surprised you the most during your research were there any kind of shocking moments when you were reading that really kind of yeah took you back a bit
1: um not sure there was any like epiphanies or big shocks uh, on on their own but certainly there was like there was there's stuff that accumulated um so certainly like the 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 extent to which a lot of this is unconscious was something that really built built and built and built um to a point where it was like it sort of became a bit of a revelation i suppose and that actually a lot of motivation is just below the level of awareness and Mm. like as a species we just like are kind of blind to it in many ways which is one of the reasons why we don't have that many books on it we you know even the research itself kind of lacks a certain level of uh, consensus in terms of language and concepts Um, and more precisely I suppose some of the really interesting nuggets that not all of them made into the book actually there was some really interesting stuff from like a neuroscience angle around the difference between wanting and liking. Um, oh wow! Which in the first book actually propped up a little some of the uh, propped up some of the ideas around the uh, problems around rewards. Um. Also, there's some really interesting. Hey, oh,
0: Peps, you, you you have to tell us a little bit about that. You can't just dangle <laughs> that that carrot there. The difference between wanting and liking. on,
1: t- tell yeah, us a little bit about I'm that. i like, oh, this is, I need to try and get this right. Um, Mike Hobbes has 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 written well on this, so like add his blog to the the show notes um for for your readers to get a proper rundown but so you think that like the, the difference between one thing and like so um neuro, neuro, scientifically what happens uh, when you're motivated is that you get like a, a dopamine release yeah so we're kind of like you know a classic kind of description is humans as dopamine machines and you get a little bit ahead of dopamine, which um, reinforces that behaviour and increases the chance that you'll do it again in the future. So, that r- really crude, really crude, like mm. one way of looking at motivation through like a neurochemical lens. Um, but the the you know neuroscientists have found is that there's like a there's a different like brain chemical response to feelings of what a traditional like traditionally thought of as liking something versus wanting something. So essentially, when you want something, you have that feeling of really wanting something, you, you get that dopamine release, uh, which makes a difference depending on like the response of your actions to whether you uh, are more prone to doing that in the future or not, compared to when you just really like something. And so you can like something um, and not necessarily get the dopamine hit, which will change your behavior for the future. And so there is a way of looking at um, things like enjoyment in the classroom as actually a form of liking rather than a form of wanting and therefore as a less powerful motivator in terms of changing future behavior. Wow, uh, I, I
0: tell you, what, if I had come across that, perhaps I would have built an entire book around that. And you're you're just chucking that out. That is, uh, yeah, that's the kind of uh, ruthlessness that, that's going on here. That that's fascinating. And um, you you also started to say something else before I, I cut you off. Um, was there something else that you were saying that surprised you or, or not?
1: Yeah, the, the, the other, some other interesting stuff around um, e- effort and mm. effort curves, really. And so how um, when the the effort required by an action or an opportunity available to us um, decreases, our effort can decrease as well.
0: So this is there's some really
1: strange relationships uh, you know, in, in the evidence between like effort and reward, since so your effort and you getting the thing that you want to get. Um, and so it's uh, which have some like big implications for the classroom, but it's pretty complex because Yeah, you you could. It it could easily be one of those things that turns into a lethal mutation, and so, like, probably something that is worth coming back to at some point. Like you say, maybe writing a book on it, or at least a (laughs) short paper. Um, But nowhere, like, just feel it's a bit of a risky concept to chuck into a book at this stage.
0: Just give us, just give us a bit more on on that, Pep. So you're saying, what what was it when F? Just, just yeah, just I lost it a little bit. What when? effort decreases or was it motivation can decrease or so what was the relationship there
1: yeah so let me try and think of an example so say like uh you 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 want to do something you want to write a book or yeah or you want to yeah so you're you're trying to write a book craig Mm. um and there's like a certain threshold that you need to achieve to to finish the book Mm. um if like someone else is setting that threshold you're you will basically um, take the lowest threshold that will allow you to achieve that end goal um, now what that means is like and the ex- this external party could set the threshold quite high in which case your effort would match what was required so your yeah. effort would match their expectations or the the the, the challenge set but your effort would decline as their expectations or their like level of challenge, like slips as well until yes. the point whereby, uh, you n- are no longer guaranteed to be able to like achieve the end goal. And so there's this like straight like just the relationship between effort and outcome. Um, it isn't just as, as like intuitive, I think, as, as w- we as a species normally see it. Um, so you can kind of see like how there may be some implications for the classroom here because, you know, we're, we're like constantly trying to find that fine line between uh, getting pupils to put in enough effort but still be successful. Yes, but not like still not hundred percent sure. I understand what the what exactly those implications are.
0: Wow, flipping heck! Right, okay. Well, we've spoke about two things that, that didn't make the book. So let let's start talking. Let's start talking about what well, what what made the cut. Um, and if this isn't the most obvious question in the world, perhaps. And um, apologies here, but what, why is motivation such an important subject for teachers to understand?
1: Yeah, so good like a good question actually, um, and one that one that I don't think well certainly wasn't obvious to me um, when I started writing. And So a big part of like the, the last three years really has been trying to answer that question. Like what, what, what is the point? Like, why, mm. why does motivation matter or even does it matter? Um, because there's plenty of, you know, uh, plenty of studies knocking around that suggest that, you know, med- motivation is less of a thing than we think. And actually, the you know, it's, it's sometimes framed as more of an outcome than an input. And, um, you know, um, some of your readers may have like uh, heard about some of the studies that, position motivation uh, the relationship between motivation as an and achievement as a kind of like mm. a, a, as a bicausal thing yes as in like achievement increases motivation more than motivation increases achievement um just diving into that very briefly um often the studies that are cited there um tend to treat motivation as uh, quite a superficial concept and um, so the one, like, if we just think take one study. Um, I remember reading recently that, like, suggested the by, by causal relationship. Really, they were painting um, motivation as a as a kind of a liking thing. Going back to this one thing liking thing earlier, they like they surveyed pupils and asked them, "Do you like maths?" Uh, mm. And or as one of the survey questions. Um, and really, if we are uh, positioning motivation as a much more unconscious phenomenon then it's really hard for a pupil to or for, i don't think it's right for us to be associating like survey questions such as do you like something with being motivated towards it because uh you know again uh you know what you will know what the evidence confirms is that just because you like something doesn't mean you end up doing it <laughs> and so i think there are like there are some like motivation is, is quite a problematic concept not only at Uh, Kind of level of practice, but also at the level of research. Like there are just uh, yeah, there's a whole load of different terms that are used, and bunch of different theories that use different concepts, Uh, and it's it's like kind of spread across multiple fields, as we talked about earlier. Anyway, back to the question: (laughs) Why is motivation important? (laughs) The where I ended up at this really, what I kind of ended up picking apart is that it is important because it is the mechanism that enables us to allocate our attention. And because, which was the thesis of the last book, because what we attend to is what we ultimately learn, then motivation, because it influences attention, must be really important to learning. And it's that kind of like, this, this sort of very simple crude cause relationship that I think means that as teachers we've got to, pay attention to motivation if we're interested in learning
0: it's it's fascinating that that was one of my favorite parts of the the early stage of uh, the early sections of the book perhaps is when you you link those together because when I had my kind of mid-career crisis a few years ago, when I when I read Willing, Dan Williams' book Why Don't Students Like School, that that was one of the big game-changing moments when he started talking about what students attend to is what they will will think about, and what they think about is what they'll remember. But I'd never heard motivation tagged in there. So let me see if I've got this right in really simplistic terms. You, what you're motivated by is what you'll attend to, and what you attend to is what you're most likely to remember. Is is that is that kind of the in its crudest form the the thesis of well the the kind of way of linking together your previous book and this book?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. I think the only nuance I'd say in there is that rather than talking about being motivated by something, I think it's probably more helpful to talk about being motivated towards something. Mm.
0: Yeah, okay. Here I'll, I'll it's mental notes. Subtle, about but subtle <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. Really I like it. Um, the the other thing I was go- gonna just ask you as well, just before we dive into uh, the core drivers of motivation, something you mentioned in, in your previous answer there. I was thinking about this once when I was reading the book, and particularly when I was doing research for my for my first book into motivation. You get the same thing with with learning, right? It's it's quite a motivation and learning are quite vague concepts so or easy to interpret in different ways. And particularly with learning, you get Rob Coe talking about the poor proxies for learning, learning's invisible so we just can observe these visible things that we hope represent learning but may not do like students busy talking, gets getting lots of work done and so on and so forth and that might actually not be indicative of learning taking place is there a danger there as well that we have these kind of poor proxies for motivation? I mean, you mentioned one of them there, just asking students whether they like something and so on. Did, did you, was was that something you kept coming across um, in your work, Peps, that, that people were using these different proxies for motivation and, and is that potentially problematic?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it is. I think it is. It's, it makes things really tricky because if we're, if we're saying that motivation does make a difference, um, <laughs> it, it, it it makes it really hard because we can't see it. Yeah, we can't, but mm-hmm. I suppose and learning is learning itself falls prey to the same problems as well. We can't see learning, and you know, this is these reasons combined with many others uh, are the reason why teaching is so so hard and so complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just like trying to like untangle some of these big ideas that sit at the heart of teaching and figure out what they might mean, um, I think is a good good starting point. But yeah, we got to be really careful to not get uh, kind of wrapped up in them too much, or try to um, bastardize them into some kind of observable proxy, Mm. like you say. Um, So it could, you know, I can I'm very easily imagine, uh, you know, in 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 a school like trying to figure out how you might measure uh, motivation or effort by just using teacher judgment, and I think you know that. probably going to end up being a pretty flawed approach and it's really hard just to tell by looking at somebody or even what they're doing uh, like how motivated they are Um, and so yeah definitely definitely issues there it doesn't take away from the fact that it you know from a like this logical causal chain that we've built that it matters um, and that there are things we can do about it i think the thing we just got to be really careful about is um our ability to observe and measure it and therefore try to manage it
0: yeah it's it, again we get this kind of worms all the time when we when we're thinking about educational research don't we that Particularly, uh, as you say, we, we, we can't measure learning or there's no kind of widely accepted way of measuring learning. Perhaps we can measure performance on the day, but we don't know what would happen two days later, two weeks, two months later and so on. But now if we chuck in something else that's potentially difficult to measure, and particularly if we're trying to draw relationships between motivation, attention, learning and so on. It's, it's so difficult isn't it but as you say perhaps perhaps there are definite things we can pick up on definite best bets and and so on that, that we can make but we've always got to approach this with with caution and I'll tell you what so and then I'm reading the book. So I, I, I always like to paint a picture of what's happening when I'm reading this book so I'm, I'm reading I'll be honest with you right when I'm reading when I read your first book well the first book of yours that I read the memorable teaching that blew my mind because it, it was right about the time I was reading through all the stuff I memory and so on but again you have this knack of distilling everything and making it make sense and I thought god I, I could have saved myself about 500 hours here just by kind of reading your book and getting the key things but then when I got when I got to motivated teaching I thought well you know what I, I know a bit about this motivation because I've done a bit of reading myself I, is there anything I can pick up here so I get to like I think it's chapter four or something where you are can start talking about these core drivers and I'm thinking right I know straight away what, what one of these is going to be it's going to be rewards it's going to be sa- fun rewards and so on and I looking through and I'm not seeing any and then I see straight away that you make a point that these aren't one of your core drivers and I would imagine for many people when, when we start talking about practical things teachers can do to help motivate their students one of the first things that springs to mind is going to be either let's make lessons fun or let's reward students with whatever it may be but these don't make your top five for core drivers so so why
1: is that perhaps yeah okay good good uh, good thing to pick up on um and yeah, we so I think we've we've kind of covered the fun piece a bit earlier, and in, in that there's a difference between like just enjoyment and w- wanting to do something. Um, and so, just making lessons fun in, in, in themselves doesn't—I don't think—is uh, necessarily going to hold up in terms of increasing motivation. Um, Does it work the other way
0: around, though? Perhaps, like if lessons aren't fun, people aren't motivated. Is is that a relationship that
1: you buy into? If lessons aren't fun, they aren't motivated no i I don't think they're i just don't think the there's a a direct relationship or a strong Mm. and direct relationship between the two so you could very easily have a a lesson where are motivated but it'd be fun or not fun um Mm. so like what i'm not saying here is that you shouldn't you shouldn't make lessons fun like fun's a really important part of life um Be tragic to have for there to be no fun in lessons and in school, you know, both for pupils and and teachers. Um, But if we are, like you said earlier, wanting to place some best bets, if we really Mm. are trying to, if we've got like a group of students or an individual or you know a class, we really want to motivate, and we've got to ground our best bets in the best available evidence. And uh, certainly, like fun and rewards just don't don't really stack up. like rewards is um, rewards has there's the evidence around rewards is, is mixed, um, not hugely positive. Um, the you know Dan Willingham writes like re- really like succinctly on this actually, um, and he, what he suggests is that the you know at at best when ever rewards are removed, then motivation will just return to the original like baseline that it was at um and so like therefore it's it's not a like long-term solution because at mm-hmm. some point you know your pupils are going to leave your class uh, you're not going to be there they're going to leave school um, and therefore you know they if you only just have been using rewards then there's a danger that their motivation just returns to the original level and you know they, ne- they never pick up a mass textbook again in their lives um the, the worst like worst case scenario was that actually providing rewards uh, actually lessens motivation over mm. the long run um, by devaluing the object itself. Um, and I think the kind of mechanism here or the route to this is uh, basically trying to, when, when you associate a reward with something, there is a, a danger that what you're saying is that the thing itself isn't valuable and they have to provide yes. a, like, provide an, tangential reward in order to get you to do this and so it can like change the perception of the thing itself in the in the mind of the actor um, the i suppose the corollary to all this is that you know when you jump in dive into the, the evidence from neuroscience the, the 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 pathways and the the mechanisms that, that distinguish between the, the, these two things like fun rewards or any of the kind of deeper drivers aren't all that different so really you know come back to this like idea of the brain being a dopamine machine it it it, it, it doesn't really matter where the incentives come from uh, they still will incentivize you okay they will still make a difference to your motivation the big difference is that fun and rewards motivate you towards those things motivate you towards mm. the fun and the rewards, whereas the drivers that I've laid out actually are all designed to motivate you towards the thing itself, the learning opportunity. And so this is cl- like kind of classically what we you know, talked about as being extrinsic versus intrinsic. And so the, all of the, the drivers that I've painted are ex- intrinsic drivers. They motivate students towards the learning opportunity itself, whereas like fun and rewards are examples of extrinsic drivers motivate students towards the the reward itself um, I think yeah you, you I'm sure you have a few examples of that in your first book
0: I do, I do and also have have a few thoughts here perhaps because this absolutely fascinated me this because it really got me reflecting back on um, on some of the mis- many mistakes I've made <laughs> as a teacher so I think back to a ropey year 10 class ed and they were I mean they were the definition of ropey I used to absolutely dread teaching them particularly on, on a Thursday afternoon so I thought the secret was to to motivate them to try and make maths fun and so on so what I would do is a 50 minute lesson and it started off where if they worked hard for the first kind of 30 minutes, then the end of the lesson we do, we do a quiz and I'd try and subtly chuck a bit of maths in the quiz. But mainly it was just, it was kind of a bit of a sit off. It was a bit of a relax for us all and so on. And that was supposed to be the motivation. But then this was at the, early on in the year. And it was obvious what was going to happen, but I I didn't see it coming. So the the first couple of weeks, it was quite good. Like they they were willing to put the effort in and so on at the start of the lesson. But then the effort levels started dropping at the start of the lesson. So then I started having to like extend the quiz a little bit. So it started sneaking in, like (laughs) sneaking by five minutes here, 10 minutes. And the lesson essentially ended up being a quiz. And again, still they were putting zero effort in. And as soon as I took that away... They were even worse than they were before I started introducing the quiz. So it was an absolute disaster. But it's a classic thing, isn't it? It was it was there in the short term, and as as you say, it wasn't even as if the motivation levels returned to their low baseline. It was even below that oh, no. after it was gone. So so that was a disaster. That that was an absolute disaster. But the 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 well, I've got a couple of questions actually. The first one is, I and mean, it's fair to say, isn't it, Peps, that if you're if you find yourself, let's say, for example. You've picked. You've, you've got a class. You're you're two or three weeks away from a high stakes exam. You need to buy yourself a bit of effort from them. Then possibly some rewards um, may well be t- may well be useful to boost motivation in the short term. Knowing that actually your goal is fairly short term. Would would that be a fair thing to
1: say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, like I would, I as a parent, <laughs> I I have. <laughs> Definitely, and a bit, like, I'd be like, be really surprised to find any parent out there that hasn't like used this uh, strategy in the short term. Um, yeah, th- like def- definitely work. Um, and, and also, I'd say like not only in a high stakes, stakes exam context, but if you want to like g- get some pupils over the hump to get them mm. like into a place where you can start to use some of these um, like longer term drivers, then you know, yeah, like use rewards, use fun, whatever, use whatever you need to. But use as little as possible and remove those extrinsic motivators as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, that's interesting. And my, my, my follow-up question to that
0: is, is where do sanctions fit into this, Peps? Do they have literally the same effect as, as rewards in terms of the fact that they are extrinsic, potentially short-term motivators? Is there any difference at all between sanctions and rewards in terms of the effect they have on motivation?
1: Yeah. Uh, Honest answer is I don't think I have read enough to really give a like highly confident answer to that. My first guess would be that yes, it's, it's, there's, they're similar, but uh, yeah, that would only be a guess, I think. I'm going to chuck in a guess myself as well, just for whilst
0: we're both guessing yeah, yeah. on this one, we, we might as well. My my take on this, and this is from my limited reading, and, and also, as I say, my, my closet um, behavioral economist past, is that the only difference is that people, human nature seems to value the loss of something greater than gaining something. So taking away something seems to have a more powerful effect than the potential to, to, to gain something. And there's loads of lovely experiments by to Traversky and so on about this. And I think that comes to some of the research I remember reading a few years ago for How I Wish I Taught Maths, that sanctions are potentially more powerful. But again, the message comes through loud and clear. It's short-term, it's extrinsic. It may, I like that phrase, get you over the hump. It may get you on this potentially virtuous cycle between you know success, motivation, and so on and so forth that may be a bit more sustainable long-term. But yeah, in terms of a, a long-term strategy on their own, I think, yeah, sanctions are problematic, but that's certainly nothing I know a lot about, but that, that's my take yeah.
1: on it. And say, so the, 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 just to build on that, I think like loss aversion tactics become easier when pupils have more to lose. Um mm. So the, the more, the, the over time, the more motivated pupils are and the more they learn and the more they are successful, um, the more then you can start to wield some of those loss aversion strategies. But I think, yeah, like you say, this... There's probably a, lot, a bit of room for th- some extra, th- some additional theorizing around that.
0: Yep. <laughs> right. Let's turn to these the, the, the core drivers then, the five of them that, that you list. And and again, just to be clear, these are your long-term kind of drivers for sustainable intrinsic m- motivation. Now, if if I was writing this book, perhaps I would end on this first one because this is all I had. All I had up <laughs> my sleeve was success. This was as far as my research went. And I'll tell you what I thought going into reading your book. Okay. And that was that there's a definite relationship between success and motivation. My instinct had always been, well, when I was teaching, I had it the wrong way around. I would plan for motivation, believing that if I could motivate my kids, they'd be more successful. But the more I read, and Greg Ashman was the one who really kind of put me onto this, particularly mathematics achievement in in early years um by early years i mean kind of uh, younger kids six years old seven years old and so on go, going through primary the relationship seems to be the other way around that stu- if students are successful or believe they can be successful they're more likely to be motivated so that was my take kind of going in um what have i got right and what have i got wrong there peps well how does success play a role as a as a core driver of motivation
1: no i think you're bang on there yeah it's a uh... It's probably the, the the biggest driver as well. So you know, if you're going to stop anywhere, then this is a good place to stop. Um, the you know, as as a species, well, let's if we like strip back a little bit. You know, the definition mm. we came up with earlier was this idea of uh, attention being like at the, at the fulcrum, and that's not the right like analogy, but in the middle, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> linking together motivation and learning. And um, so, if we think about motivation being this mechanism that you like humans use to help them decide where to allocate their attention um, then the way that that mechanism works is kind of by treating our world partly as a bit of an investment opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, you know, is this opportunity that the teacher's presenting me a good investment compared to, you know, the opportunity that of my mate across the room who's winking at me? Like which is the <laughs> which is which is gonna give me the greatest like, gains. Now of course there's like we know human much more there are many more factors involved in um human behavior than just a like rude economic analysis, but it it, it nevertheless it is part of that, a big part of that decision making. Um And so really success is just another way of thinking about how well you have done in the past and uh, basically like uh, how effective your investment is going to be in the future. And so the more successful a pupil is in maths, the more likely that they are to invest their attention in it in the future, as simple as that. And um, So what this of course means for the classroom is we as teachers, we've got to like pay a bit of extra attention to success, and tread the line carefully. Make sure we pitch well, and provide lots of scaffolding. And, you know, get the the, the 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 level of challenge right, um, and keep moving it as our pupils move. But also um, be extra sensitive to failure as well, because like you kind of talked about earlier with loss aversion, like the cost of failure can be pretty significant in the classroom. And um, there's like. Uh, psychological effects like anxiety, damage to egos, loss of status—there's all sorts of things. And so, without like a really firm conviction that success is likely, initial efforts can really quickly like wane and just be replaced with apathy and like even avoidance. That's interesting.
0: That two t- two questions um, are on success, perhaps. Um, th- ooh, let me think which one to go for first. Yeah, I, I think I'll go for- go for this one. It is. Am I right in saying that, to go back to something you said earlier, this is all happening kind of subconsciously is Is that right? Kids aren't kind of kind of consciously performing a bit of a cost benefit analysis and thinking what am I likely to get out of diverting my attention to here versus over here is Is this all acting subconsciously, and if if that's the case can we as teachers kind of practically help motivate our kids if if it's kind of going on below the surface if that makes sense?
1: So yeah, from like what I understand, yes, it is largely unconscious um, just because our world is too intractable to be able to mm, yes. uh, to, to, to consciously work through. Like the amount of com- computational power that it would just take you to decide whether it's better to you know, listen to Mr. Barton talk about equivalent fractions versus <laughs> like, you know, get involved in the discussion with my mate across the room. Like just that simple decision would just cripple us if we like tried to, to really rationally calculate it, you know, try to figure out what the value of the, you know, the, the fractions that you're teaching us are, you know, initially and in like 40 years time and uh, what the value of like, you know, versus the value of, uh, you know, talking to my mate across the room, you know, now and in 40 years time, like there's just no way you could, you could ever um, like figure that out. And if you tried to, by the time you'd figure it out, the opportunity would be missed. And so, mm-hmm. like, the decision cost is too high, and therefore, like, as a species, it's just not effective for us to, like, um, have, have a system whereby we're making the majority of our systems consciously. You know, this is, you talked about Danny Kahneman earlier, this is really his big, like, one of his big contributions is that, yeah, a lot of our, a lot of, we offload a lot of our, our decision making to, like, more emotional less conscious mechanisms which serves us really well like you know as a species we've been pretty successful and and, I continue to be so Um, and I think we 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 often in education um, maybe don't acknowledge just how important that unconscious intuition is and because what it does is it frees up the space for us to be able to think more rationally when we need to which is really a process that is at the heart of education. Um, you know, education, like think about what goes on in the classroom and what we talked earlier about you know, Dan Willingham's thesis, that really what we're trying to do is to get pupils to think about particular things, to get them to pay attention to stuff. And they can only do that if they can free up the majority of their you know, conscious processing power to be able to concentrate on the fractions. Um, and so, if they were constantly trying to figure out whether to even attend to the fractions themselves, they wouldn't be able to think about them at all. They just wouldn't have that part to do so.
0: Um, I, I guess that it fascinates me, this perhaps. And again, apologies for for wanting to just dig a bit deeper on this. I I appreciate that this. Again, a Kahneman makes the distinction between System One and System Two, and the, you know the the emotional drivers that we don't realize are happening, and then the more kind of slow, methodical way of rationally thinking that can sometimes take over and overrule that. And I appreciate that that serves us well as humans, but sometimes as a teacher, I I find myself thinking. I wish my kids didn't have this kind of instinctive thing because what I want them to do is rationally think it is going to be better for them to pay attention to the activity or the exercise or so on, because in the long term, that's going to serve them far better than gazing out the window or switching off and so on and so forth. So, the point I'm making is that the fact that these motivational decisions are subconscious. Can can that make it actually quite difficult for a teacher to try and kind of tap into students' motivation? Because kids aren't kind of thinking rationally whenever they're deciding how to allocate their attention. Do, does that make any sense at all? Yeah,
1: and you you say you know kids aren't thinking rationally like humans. <laughs> don't, yes, don't yes, think, of like, don't think about rationally. <laughs> if you if you are like thinking about that as a rational approach. like like, thinking through every decision you face is not actually a Mm. rational approach to life. Yes. Yes. It's, 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 that's crazy. (laughs) And so like the the way, the way rationality is, is kind of positioned in the literature isn't quite right. I think like there's some, uh, some interesting stuff on deep rationality, which really like posits that uh, this combination of conscious reasoning and unconscious emotional processing is the most rational approach um, and it, it kind of to a certain extent correct it just is what it is. you know we're the products of uh, you know hundreds of thousands of millions of well millions of years of evolution um, they're like we are the amount of change that our society has experienced in the last you know hundred years, even the last you know 10,000 years is is, is kind of, crazy compared to how much change was experienced in the preceding you know few million um and yet evolutionary speaking evolutionarily speaking um our our biology and our brains haven't had the opportunity to adapt to that changing environment so in some ways you know some people argue that we are essentially uh, like we've got the brains of our stone age ancestors Running around in this like highly advanced environment um and in some ways that's like a you like it can be an interesting starting point in terms of thinking about how you approach like like the classroom trying to reason um with anyone why they might want to learn fractions will only ever get you so far and um, like the emotional and unconscious processing that goes on is just going to override any kind of like Uh, reasoning that even any kind of rationale that you can build for uh, fractions in the moment absolutely absolutely
0: and my my other question about success peps is to do with growth mindset and i know this isn't something that you obviously to talk and can talk in depth about in the in the book with your focus primarily on motivation but Again, I just wanted to get your take on this because I was a I was a massive growth mindset believer until I started doing my, my research and reading around this. And the conclusion I reached a few years ago, and I think I'm still at this point now, but I'm interested in your take, is that grow, all this talk about growth mindset and not giving up and keep, mo- keep being motivated, keep trying and trying and trying, and you'll get there in the end and no ceiling on your ambition – that's all well and good. But without this foundation of success, this experience of past success, which then permeates through to this belief that you, you will be successful if you keep putting the effort in, then all this talk of growth mindset kind of falls flat on its face. Because if your experience has always been failure, then it doesn't matter how many times you're told or you tell yourself, no, if I keep going, I will be successful. It's it's not it's just it's not credible. So how does how does growth mindset fit into 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 motivation and and success in particular, perhaps in in your view?
1: Right, yeah, I think you've you've summed it up fairly well there. I think um, the way I see it, uh, growth mindset, I suppose, is a form of re- resilience or perseverance, which is essentially a byproduct of motivation. Um, and so, if you are Really motivated towards something, then you're going to put in the effort and keep putting in the effort. Um, Richard Wiseman talks about concepts being ob- oblique, so he uses like he talks about happiness being oblique. It's it's not something that you can chase directly, but it occurs as a result of other things. Um, and I think like I think like resilience and growth mindset to a certain extent are probably more products of other things than things themselves Um, and so if you are repeatedly successful then it's just much more likely you're going to be resilient and persistent when it comes to doing the same thing Um, but not just success I think all of the the kind of drivers that we look at here you know uh, like norms can make a big difference as well you know when you have other people in your class who are following a particular social norm then that can just increase your motivation towards that thing. And therefore you can end up being more resilient towards it.
0: Absolutely fine. Okay, I won't change my mind on that then, Peps. Okay, that's that's all right. I'm happy there. I'm happy there. Right. Well, as I say, like if I was writing this book, that that was where the the, the, the full stop would be hit, and I'd be I'd be logging off the computer and, and sending this in. But you you go on for four more uh, four more core drives of motivation. Now, I didn't know a lot about these um, at all, Peps, and this 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 really fascinated me. So, without giving the, the full game away of the book, um, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about each of these, and particularly the the kind of the key the key points, the key take. Takeaways. So the first is routines. What role do routines play in motivation?
1: Sure. So, let's you know, jumping back to this idea that uh, as humans we are uh, placing bets, constantly trying to place bets on where to invest our attention, um, and one of the way, one of the things that kind of influences our appraisal of the situation is you know, the, the value that carries, which is determined by, um, you are p- partly determined by a prior success rate. So that's uh, the role of success. But on the flip side, we're also interested in how much we might have to invest. Um, and so, you know, if I said to you, you know, Craig, you can, you know, crack out another book, no problem, tomorrow, <laughs> if you like, uh, then you'd be like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, there's no, no downside to that. But if I said to you, look, you know, you're going to have to, you um, Actually, not tomorrow. Yeah, you're going to have to, <laughs> in a year's time, you're going to have to you know, write every, every second of every waking day between now and <laughs> you know, three years' time, whatever it is. You'd you think twice about it. So basically mm-hmm. what, what I think this, the second, cha- second driver is uh, based upon is this idea that um, we're also motivated by the cost of our investments as well, how much effort or attention we perceive we might have to put in to get something out. Um, and if we like think about how we can operationalize that, how we can like reduce the cost in, in school, then routines come as one of the like best strategies. Um, and the reason is because there are, there some real, again, you know, we talked earlier about teaching being so complex, um, And this is a, you know, cost is a great example of this. Like when you try to reduce cost, you can increase motivation by reducing the cost. Um, Like this is, you know, a classic kind of insight from behavioral economics. But of course, in teaching, we can't just do that so easily. We can't just say, all right, let's just make this lesson easier. Um, Because by doing that, you sacrifice some of the learning and you sacrifice some of the success and the progress and the thing we care about. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is like, how can, if you want to increase motivation by reducing cost, what, how can we do that without sacrificing learning? And where I kind of got to with this is that routines are the answer because they allow you to reduce the decision cost that we talked about earlier, you know, trying to figure out what to do at every at every point, And so enable you to maintain the amount of effort required to think about the thing you're learning itself and so sorry sorry peps
0: oh sorry no i didn't mean to cut you off there you go (laughs) Well, again this this blows my mind this because it it makes so much sense in terms of reducing that decision cost i really like framing it that way and again I've, i've seen this in action myself where i don't know if this is the right way to think about it but if kids know what they're doing and know what's expected of them then they just kind of get on with it because it's, it's what they're used to. And if we frame it in terms of you know working memory capacity or whatever, they don't have to think about what's expected, what do I need to do? They've just got more, more capacity left to attend to, hopefully, the thing that's going to resonate with them and, and stick and so on. I wonder, though, where... I don't know if this is the right way to put it Where where either boredom or the role of novelty comes into play because you always hear that you know sometimes it's good to mix things up it's, it's something a bit different does the, is this just going back into into fun that we talked about before perhaps if 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 lessons and, and routines are always just there is there a danger that there's boredom and do we need to mix things up every now and again to motivate or is this just kind of retreading old ground from earlier on in the conversation that this is just in the realms of of fun i don't know if that
1: makes sense just a few thoughts that's a good 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 question really um i think it gets gets pretty messy in 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 there Mm. in the answer (laughs) Um, yes because you well so some uh, some random thoughts in no particular order like yeah firstly not not suggesting that the all of the experience of education becomes one big set of routines Um, I definitely think there's a place for novelty and and a valuable place for novelty because novelty is how we, you know, develop a rich, wide variety of experiences. Um, And so it's probably more about balancing up um, novelty with routine. Uh, And I suspect that it's less that we don't have routines in place in schools at the minute, but just that they are, less intentionally designed and so you know as a species we are uh, incredibly habitual we look like most of the stuff we do we just do like thinking like we talked about earlier and so they are we just are creatures of habit and but how many of those habits are actually have been designed intentionally is a different question mm. and then the other the other part of the answer is really around um in terms of boredom if it's you can we need to kind of tease apart whether it's the process of learning or the, the object, the thing that you're, you're learning itself that's boring you. And if actually you are feeling success and you know, these other drivers are in place, then it doesn't really matter about the process. You're motivated towards the thing itself. Mm. So you're not really, it doesn't really matter how you get there. Like if you're motivated towards something, uh, then it's even better actually if, if the other distracting decisions that you have to make along the way are taken out of the way. That's interesting. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah. I think you've sold me on that one, Peps. So that's good. Okay, all right. um Norms is is the uh, is the third one of your drivers, and I, I should say just before we go in there, we, we, you, you mentioned that success is perhaps the most important or the most significant of these drivers. Uh, I'm, is this a hierarchy kind of going down in importance, or does the order not matter that you present these Peps in the book?
1: Um, no, I think there is a very loose hierarchy, very very loose. Um. I'd say there's like, from my understanding, there's there's not so much structure or sequence here rather than just like a set of things that you have to try and get as many turned on as possible. So it's more like yes. a, you know, throw the spaghetti. as much spaghetti at the wall and hope that a good <laughs> portion of it sticks. Um, but I definitely, you know, based on what we talked about earlier, like success success probably has the most, um, it's probably the most sustainable, sustainable of approaches because. Uh, it is autocatalytic, so it fuels itself. Like the more successful you are, the higher your expect- expectancy is going to be, the more challenge you will take on, uh, and the fluency and proficiency that you develop as a result of that, again, like refuels that motivation itself. So, uh, that, like success probably sits above all of the others, but the rest then also do play a role. Like you need, like we said about earlier, you know. If the cost of investment is too high, then it doesn't matter how big the success is, you're just not going to invest. Um, gotcha. And like n- norms and belonging, the next two drivers are, are, are kind of similar. They are, they mediate the like s- success to a certain extent. Um, we have already talked about this idea that as a species, we are, uh, we do think economically to a certain extent. We think about like, what you know, what's the value here and how much is it going to cost me? Sort of classical economics, but what behavioral economics has helped us understand is that uh, as a species, we're like the, the economical thinking is very much mediated by our social context, by what other people are doing and how we like perceive uh, those other people, whether we like belong to those groups or not. Essentially, um, and so I suppose norms is a uh, and it, one of the interesting ones because it's. I suppose belonging as well. Like it, it is super unconscious in many ways. We don't really notice when we are being influenced by the norms of those around us. And yet they are incredibly powerful. It's the reason why, you know, I can't get my kids to <laughs> put, their, put their clothes away at the end of the day. And yet, like, pretty much every teacher can get like 30 kids to, you know, sit down uh, in a seat for a large part of like an hour and um, like norms are hugely powerful and they are they are really the only reason like or not the only reason but they are one of the biggest reasons that the school system works if we didn't have norms um school just wouldn't work at all
0: it's interesting uh, i again I, I see the powers of norms whenever i'm lucky enough to to, to visit schools or, or teach lessons myself it's true isn't it perhaps i think that it can go either way with norms right you can you can get the norms that can be really good and norms in terms of motivation behavior and so on but you can also get the norms that can can go the wrong way i I see again to use another behavioral economics analogy so there's a bit of a tipping point going on if you get enough Sometimes it's influencers in the class or enough people on board or whatever it is, or you say enough times that, or, or acted out enough times the norms can go the right way or they can, they can go the wrong way. Well, would that be fair, that norms can play a negative role in motivation as much as positive?
1: Absolutely, because the, the norm could be uh, that we don't care about learning and we don't answer questions yeah. here and we're not interested in you know, going on to do further study. Um, so like those norms can easily become just as prevalent as you know, desirable norms. I think the...
0: And this is... Oh, sorry, go, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I just, I think the thing, like, again, coming back to the unconscious nature, a bit like routines, um, we can often assume that we just, well, firstly, we don't notice them, and secondly, uh, if we do notice them, that we don't have a huge amount of influence over them. And yet, I think that's that's probably an area that, as a profession, we can we, we, we can do more on than we think. and We can have an influence on norms, even if it's just a little bit. And that little bit can make all the difference when it comes to things like tipping points. Well, this is the
0: world's worst question, Peps, that you're going to get now. But um, if I was a listener listening to this, I'd be thinking, right, Peps, tell me how to influence my norms so I can I can drive motivation a bit more. Again, it's an impossible question, but just is there any any advice you would have for for, for teachers out there thinking about motivation and thinking about those norms? What are some practical things teachers could do to get that working in the right direction?
1: Yeah, so I suppose, like you said earlier, you know, norms are how we what we perceive normal behavior to be in, in, in our lo- local environment. And so the more people we perceive to be doing something, the more like, we'll be drawn towards doing that thing itself. And so as teachers, you know, we can begin to influence norms a little bit by changing the, that kind of visibility a little bit. So we can well, we can do simple things like work hard to make sure that as many pupils as possible are you know, embracing a desirable behavior um, you know if you can get hundred percent adoption, then that's a hugely powerful uh, social norm. It makes it really hard for one person to not follow that. Um, when one person doesn't follow social norms, then like uh, it makes it a lot easier for others to not follow along. Um, but that's very hard it's very easy to say, hard to necessarily do. Um, <laughs> and so actually you know if you're if you're not at that point yet where you have 100 percent like you know, em- embrace embracement, not the right word. Hundred percent of people's behind the norm, then um, you know it, it, it might be worth thinking about how you can ele- elevate the visibility of the more desirable norms that you would like to see in your class. And so, for example, you can just like call out whenever you see a pupil doing something that you want to be uh, perceived as a, as a as a desirable norm. So, like highlight it, exp- like make it bigger than life. Uh, you know, talk about it, tell a story about it. If it's not happening in the class that you are with at the minute, tell a story about another class where those social norms are working really well. Get pupils to start to, like, think like, be exposed to them more often and more vividly over time. Stories can be like a really powerful tool here, and so just telling stories about pupils who. And even idols who conform to desirable norms can slowly just chip away, I suppose, at um, like pupils' perception of norms in the classroom. Really, really practically, one thing that teachers can do is um, be careful about the norms that they communicate or the messages they put out to their class. So, the classic example uh, I used before is uh, where a teacher says, Oh, okay, um, you know, year nine none of you have done your homework this week. <laughs> now make sure you do it next week. And really what the teacher is doing there is is sending a really clear message about what the norm of that classroom is. Um, that it's normal in this class not to do your homework. And so if there is somebody in that class thinking, oh, should I do my homework or not? They're probably gonna err towards the side of, oh, okay, let's do what yes. the norm is and not do my homework. Um, you know, whereas, you know, if I was a teacher in that situation, I'd probably be picking up on those few pupils who might have done it and say, look, let's, look this person's done their homework, they've done a great job, um, and, you know, de-emphasise the rest, let's just say, for for an hour until you can build up towards the tipping point whereby you can say, hey, everyone here has done their homework. And then that makes it really much harder for the rest of the class to opt out at that stage because they would been breaking social convention, as it were.
0: That's a great answer to a tricky question about Peps. I love it. Fantastic. Um, Well, but what about belonging then? Now you you mentioned, and I thought you were going to do a, a, we haven't had it yet. I thought you were going to do a classic Peps and try and bundle these two together and change my very tight structure (laughs) to this interview. But no, you've allowed me to do these separate. So, but you mentioned there's a definite relationship between norms and and belonging. So how's belonging different and and what's its link to motivation?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, definitely belonging and norms really. Really closely related because we only really feel the effects, the norming effects, um, where where we feel part of a group. Um, and so, if you know, for example, in a class, a pupil doesn't feel like they belong. It doesn't matter how much you say, "Oh, everyone's handed in their homework." If they don't feel that they belong to that group. They won't feel that they want to go along with the norm of that group. And so, if you want to actually make the most of norms, then you have to help people feel like they belong. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Yeah. It's. It sounds again. I'm. I'm going to ask the terrible question. Perhaps it's. It. It sounds difficult to do. How, how can teachers do it?
1: Yeah. So you're right. I think again, unconscious nature. You know, I've gone back to it again. Just means it's not mm. not necessarily obvious. Um. But really what, what is, you know, think about what belonging means. It's about feeling that you are part of a group. And so um, we, you know, in, in a, any school, there are going to be lots of groups that operate at any mm. given moment, many of them like well without or outside of the control of the teacher. But we certainly can influence the, the group that is our class. Um, and within that class, we can make sure that we recognize the status of individuals, making them feel that they are part of the group by highlighting the contributions that they make. and um, We can make sure that you know, classic thing, in, 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 inclusive things, like making sure everyone feels they're included in activities, discussions, jokes, celebrations. Um, and we can use the language of we and us rather than you and me to make sure that mm. people sort of understand that we're here together and we've got a shared fate in this. Um, and all those things sort of can have an influence on that feeling of, 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 of it being a group. Um, other things like practically other things that teachers can do are to help pupils to find common ground and um, we feel more belonging to a group when we feel that, that we have common ground and so yeah just prompting pupils to look for personal connections in their background or their interests or shared experiences um, again that comes back you know, coming back to the having a shared purpose for the class basically gives everyone common ground immediately um, those are all things that can help to build belonging and once you have belonging then norms can have a like can like be supercharged in some ways
0: i'll I'll tell you what peps i'll make this point now just in case i forget forget to make it later on but it just highlights this doesn't it what a bloody hard job teaching Mm. is, because i remember i just used to just teach just used to try and you know convey the information as clearly as i could to the kids and it was only when i started uh, researching for my first book that i started to get into all working memory long-term memory retention uh, the importance of retrieval and all that kind of stuff and i thought i had that stuff sorted and now, then you realise you've not just got to be familiar with kind of cognitive science; you've also got to be a bit of a behavioural psychologist as well, and get into all this kind of stuff. And that's then before you start taking on any kind of pastoral role or anything like that. It's bloody hard, isn't it, Peps? So like again, how much of this stuff do teachers? I mean, they need to. I guess my question is, how? in depth do teachers need to know about all this stuff because i often find myself asking that question when i start thinking about working memory and so on do the teachers when, when i start giving workshops on it? i think does everybody really need to know about like phonological <laughs> loop visual spatial sketchpad is where do we draw the line on this it's obviously important that we have a, a working understanding of motivation but do, do you know what i mean what how far do we need to go as as practicing teachers if that makes any sense at all yeah yeah
1: it, it... It's a good question. Like, f- firstly, I completely agree. Like, the more I come to understand teaching, the more I'm convinced it's the, it's the hardest prof- hardest <laughs> of professions. Like, you know, medicine really pales in comparison. Brain surgery easy. You know, you got one person who's not even moving, <laughs> and you can <laughs> you can see the brain you're operating on. Um, you know, compared to trying to like, change the minds of thirty pupils who don't necessarily want. To, uh, to to go along with what you're proposing, um, how, how, like what the what the profession needs to know to be effective, um, I think there's like it's it's about understanding the some of the, the, the core concepts and then what some of the implications of those concepts are, and so like having a good sense of um, how learning works, and you know, we've talked a little bit about that can make a real difference. Uh, so there's sort of some low hanging fruit there um similarly like just ha- having like a basic understanding of like what are the key drivers i suppose that can motivate people um, and then some of the implications of those and you can like extrapolate a little bit from that but having the foundations i think is really important um the you know at the start of the conversation today we talked about the early career framework and that is doing a fabulous job of kind of laying the groundwork um for the profession to be much more like uh, something like the medical profession, where we have a you know a, a a basic body of knowledge that the is useful for the profession to know and to build upon. Uh, you know, every, every profession has knowledge which is contested and more uh, knowledge than any individual can know. But for something like teaching, which I think is increasingly being understood as a an an uh, an act that is not something you can just Intuit your way to being effective at. Um, I think it's really important that we basically have a system whereby we help teachers to to learn stuff, um, and we're constantly triaging the research to figure out what are the things that are useful to know, um, and 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 building a bank of examples and language to help us uh, be able to like transform practice or what Rob Co would call build scalable models of practice. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm annoyed at myself here, Peps, because I've blown my own structure, it I took us on that little tangent, So I thought I'd best get that in before I forget to ask it. But, of course, we've got our fifth core driver to talk about. So as a recap, we've done success routines, norms, and belongings. And the fifth and final one is is buy-in. Well, what's that all about, Peps?
1: Yeah, so, so buy-in, it's... Oh, buy, buy was it was a really tricky, this is a really hard chapter to write, because, um, you know, when you... And I look at the the research. The this concept of autonomy comes comes through loud and clear. Um, you know, deci and Ryan popularized it in the well, not popularized. I suppose they kicked it off with um, or popularized it at least in the research community with self-determination theory. Um, and then you know Daniel Pink talked about it in his book Drive um, uh, as being like one of the big kind of motivators, at least in the workplace for adults. But it Is just not so easy to implement in a school context. Um, If we just give all of our pupils like autonomy over what they wanted to learn and how they learnt it, uh, like they really really wouldn't (laughs) make as much progress as like they deserve to, Um, because pupils don't, you know, by the very nature of being a pupil is that you don't know what you don't know. And so just as like a medical patient would lack sufficient expertise to diagnose their own ailments, pupils are not often best placed to make wise choices about their own classroom learning, even if they think they are, which is what the, the Dunner, Dunning-Kruger, Kruger-Dunning effect reminds us of. can't remember which way around is it?
0: I think Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> I'm going that, but yeah. It's time Kruger got a bit more prominent, so we'll flip it round. I, like, I like that. I like that. <laughs> and again peps and apologies i'm I'm like a broken record here and i know my listeners are always desperate for as i am for for the practical things so what are some of the ways that teachers can help foster this this buy-in
1: yeah so like a big, a big part of it is probably just explaining the why no and this is like mm. this sort of comes back to starts to like this is where the framework starts to reach its edge i suppose in terms of consistency because now we're starting to think about um, trying to convince pupils rationally for them to to do things and so but explaining why you're doing things will mean that um, even if you aren't able to people to give pupils like autonomy over what they do in the classroom at least you can give them an insight into why they are why you're asking them to do the things that they're doing and why it might be of benefit to them um, now, of course, as teachers, like we have what we might call a curse of knowledge ourselves. Because we know so much about our subjects, it can often be easy to assume that the value of what we're teaching is simply obvious. Um, whereas this is just not the case for someone who's never come across fractions before. It's just not clear like why they might be really useful in life and really interesting as well. Um, there's a reason why it took us like centuries to... Thousands of years to like discover them <laughs> as a species, <laughs> um, but also I think like that kind of um, idea of being a salesperson is not really something that's like sits very well within our profession. We tend to, like, I think, naively hope sometimes that you know the value of education is sufficiently obvious that pupils you know, will eventually figure it out if just left to their own devices. And yeah, I think that's wrong. I think we need to help them constantly to see the value of what we're of the opportunities we're presenting them with. Um, and so when we, you know, practically what we can do is to make sure that when we are framing the benefits for pupils of what we're teaching them, we're framing it from their perspective rather than just like what we as a teacher or what society might believe it to be of, of value. And we can try and bring those benefits as near as possible. You know, we talked about behavioral economics earlier, and one of the classic you know, findings, of behavioral economics, is the, is, uh, oh, what's the term for it, Craig? Like the closer it is, the more valuable it is.
0: Oh, really yeah, not, not proximity effect. It's something along those lines. Yeah, I know what <laughs> you mean. Oh, so mm. the tip of my tongue. I know, yeah, I know. Well, we'll the <laughs> listeners will be screaming that at us, Patrick. <laughs> so That's that fine. Perfect,
1: yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, like, you know, expediting those benefits, bringing them as close as possible, not just like the value of, you know, when you grow up, this is going to help you to have a better career, but, you know, how can it be useful and valuable to you right now? Mm. And then I think, like, the last thing maybe we could do with, um, in terms of like building buy in, is to um, provide opportunities for pupils to, basically commit, I suppose, as it were. So it's like present them with the, here's the why, here's why I'm doing this here's why it might be a benefit for you. And then like asking people, so really, are you in? Are you are you going to come along with me on this? And giving them, I suppose, a certain degree of autonomy over how much, just how much they commit and how much effort they put into that decision. Um, and it could be as simply just asking them, you know, are you in? Or we can go deep and we could ask them to, you know, write down, how their values align with the opportunity we're providing, and that can have an increased effect. And we could get them to come up with some implementation intentions, which is basically where you write down what you think you're going to do, exactly when and where, plus any barriers that you might come up against and how you might overcome them, or even get them to like do a commitment contract. So if they say, yeah, I'm in, sir, I'm up for doing this, then getting them to like either like, write down in a decoration, or like verbally commit to it within their peers. Those things can all kind of like chip away to help um, increase the level of buy-in. And once you have buy-in, then uh, people are more, are going to be more motivated.
0: I'll tell you what. What I found interesting when reading this particular bit of the book, perhaps, it reminded me when I was um, doing my very limited, compared to yours, uh, research into into motivation one of the big surprises for me was was the role of choice because I'd always assumed that that choice was motivating um, for, 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 for students for, for anybody it's really good to have autonomy to, to pick and choose now when I the first thing that struck me why choice is potentially a bad thing is particularly mathematics There's a classic study i think it's clark i think 1982 or something okay. that that states that um so what what can happen sometimes is that higher achieving students will purposely choose work that's uh, perhaps easy for them because they like the feeling of just getting it mm-hmm. right and working through it, loads of ticks and i've certainly experienced that myself And the converse, sometimes lower achieving students will choose perhaps less kind of directed instruction, more kind of group work and so less structured activities because it's easier to hide away in those. It's it's easier to. Yeah, exactly. So you get the problem that that choice actually, as you say, students don't often pick the thing that's that's good for them and that's problematic. But then the flip side of that is I still was kind of clinging on to this belief choice in itself is inherently motivating it's far better to say all right you choose what you want to do than be told right you are definitely doing this but i'm not convinced that's the case uh, peps because again just from from my own perspective i know sometimes whether you call it the paradox of choice or whatever too much choices is simply overwhelming and i think if you have the buy-in from kids, if you've explained to them, look, and you, you you are going to do these five questions, or we are going to do this task because this, this, and this. If you get that buy-in, then I think you kind of override the potentially motivating influence of choice, and and it can be better for everybody. W- w- what do you make of that, Peps? And, and what do you think about choice in itself being inherently motivating?
1: Yeah, yeah. So. You know, r- r- agree with everything you, everything you said, and then um, yeah, definitely too much. You know, too much choice can be paralyzing. Definitely evidence to support that. Um, but I think that's less. The thing that le- comes across less clearly in a lot of the kind of more popular popular reads <laughs> around choice um, is that actually, it's there are times where it's not a it's not a good thing to have choice if you don't feel that you're in the best position to make the a strong decision for your own Mm. benefit and so and this this is a situation i think that occurs you know all the time in the classroom just like just like in medicine you know you wouldn't want your doctor giving you a load of choice about what the (laughs) about what your your prescription is Um, (laughs) and what you really want is for them to make a decision and for you to trust them and it's the trust piece i think that's probably more important than choice and like you say it kind of Trust overrides choice. When I um, when I tr- trust someone who is making a decision on, on my behalf, then I'm am re- really much more happy to go along with that than if they uh, just gave me a range of options about which I knew very little. Um, and so this is why you know we we teachers, all teachers know that trust is such a big part of the equation. Um, but again, something perhaps that we haven't codified as much as we could have, um, and. So, like, as teachers, you can earn trust, I suppose. You can build it. Um, You get given a certain degree of status by the school, but that's not really trust. Um, But you can earn trust by being predictable over time and making sure that your pupils uh, are able to, like, guess what's going to happen next. It builds trust in, in you. You can build trust by being credible, making sure that your pupils know what you're talking about. Um, and you can build trust by just demonstrating that you have got their best interests at heart consistently. Um, and if you do that over time long enough, then you'll have the trust and if you explain the why, then people will understand the decisions you're making. Um, and there, at, at that point, I think like giving them the opportunity to decide how much they're going to go in on the opportunity you're providing them rather than trying to like, give them a range of choices is just going to be much better for them um, in many ways.
0: Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, Peps. Um, I, I want to move now just to, to start wrapping things up just with some general takeaways. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure this is a good question, but we'll go with it anyway. Um, what, what do you think the most important part of the book is? It's one of those, it sounds a good question, but I'm not sure I'd be able to answer it for anything I've ever written. So let, let me throw it to you anyway. This, you may be the last person to ever get asked this, but let's go for it. What, what, what's the most important part
1: of your book, Peps? I'd say it's the, the definition of motivation. This idea that...
0: Just give us that one more time. Give us that one more time. Yeah,
1: sure. That This idea that motivation is the mechanism by which we allocate our attention. And what we attend to is what we ultimately learn. Yeah, that is lovely. That is is lovely.
0: And and as I said, the fact that it it builds upon what I first read from Willingham, by adding this new element in that that, again i just had not considered it's all well and good saying students remember what they attend to but how do they choose what they attend to yeah no that's that's lovely right it it lives to fight another day that question (laughs) perhaps, that's good good. um now again i was i was concerned that we might get kind of bogged down in the theory throughout this and i'd I'd need to try and pull out the practical towards the end but you've been very forthcoming with with the practical throughout this conversation peps so i just wonder if i can just push you a a little bit further um, on that let's say we've got teachers listening to this who are now kind of sold on the idea of of motivation if if they weren't before is there anything that you'd say to teachers that in the short term they could do let's say they're listening to this on a a Tuesday they're going into their class on see their kids on Wednesday what would be something short-term practical they could do that would improve their students levels of motivation
1: Uh, okay so let's pick one lucky dip <laughs> <laughs> well i
0: mean the reason the yeah. reason i ask, peps is because like norms is something that's going to take a bit of time right yeah. and and as you say buy ins probably going to take a bit of time particularly if it's fairly early on in the year the kids don't really know the teacher all that well at this stage if it's a you know they're, they're new to being taught by that teacher i'm wondering well, what what's what's something short term that we could do
1: yeah so i think like feedback's a really interesting one to just jump into for a second Um the like how we frame feedback is, can be quite a particularly like sensitive area in teaching. Um, like if we this is kind of we think about this within belonging. Okay, you don't often think about you know how your feedback influences a sense of belonging, but pupils can easily interpret the feedback that you give them as criticism, and therefore as a sign of rejection from the group. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the power of norms are going to diminish for you in your class. That's and interesting. So, like you saying, you've got this question incorrect could easily be seen as I'm not accepted here. Wow! Yes. And so, like really practically, what somebody, what as teachers, what we can do is we can uh, reframe that so that pupils see your feedback, regardless of what it, like what it is, as being a feature, a defining feature of the group that they belong to. So you know, you you need to intentionally help them understand that in this class we all push each other and I will continue to give you feedback because I care about you getting better and I won't you know everyone is going to get feedback and that will mean that and people who get feedback are part of the group and um, even more than those people who don't get it and that means that the next time you provide some feedback if people won't feel rejected they will probably feel like they belong even more
0: that's absolutely fascinating that. I remember um god it must be about 5 years ago now when when Dylan William came on the podcast for the first time and I asked him um what was what's the most surprising piece of research he'd ever read mm-hmm. and he cited the the meta study into feedback i think hattie was involved in it that um that found that oh, that feedback is one of the most influential things on on students learning but half the studies found it had a negative effect and half found it had a positive effect. And I could never quite get my head around that, but maybe that is one of the reasons, Pep, that that, that feedback potentially can be alienating and therefore for less motivating. Is this yet another argument to move towards more whole class feedback, not just from a a teacher workload perspective, but from a, from a norms, from a belonging perspective, the fact I'm not going to pick out individuals who've got things wrong. I'm going to say, look, this is a class issue. This particular question. So let's deal with it all together. Is
1: or am I stretching it a little bit there? Uh, no, I think so. I think you could you could do that. Could be one of your this, the strategies because you know providing feedback to the whole class then reduces the uh, like sense of critique that an individual may feel they are getting. So yeah, I think that's a a great idea. Definitely add add that in. Um, and I we'll just keep expect, that. We won't cut. won't call that out. That's good. Yeah, talking, <laughs> <laughs> and just remember, like uh, I, um, I remember that podcast you did with Dylan William and he said there was a great quote in there. He said, "Good teachers have this ability to get pupils to care about stuff they didn't care about when they walked into the classroom." Yes. And, and I think in many ways that kind of like really sums up. I think what I'm trying to achieve with the book um, is that we're trying to change what. How people see, how people value the opportunities that we present to them. Good teachers uh, have, like, sometimes figured out how to do that intuitively, but I think as a profession, there's like a real opportunity for us to codify the different ways we might be able to do that, so that we can more, even more teachers can do it, even better.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And um, and again, my final kind of question, specifically um, about the book, I'm, I'm wondering what. And again, it's a bad question. I'm, I'm wondering what you would advise teachers to do in the longer term. Now, the, the reason I'm asking this is I really like the way that you framed these core drivers as kind of things that you're trying to turn on. There's no point just focusing on one of them. You want to be trying to dip in and, and turn on as many of these as possible. I guess what I'm after here is if there's often a danger, and I don't know if you find this yourself, perhaps that... Either when I'm on CPD myself or if if I'm lucky enough to deliver CPD to, to some colleagues and there's loads of different ideas flying around and you're dead excited at the end of it. You think, right, I'm going to try that. And you end up trying about 10 or 11 mm-hmm. different things. And it's a disaster because it's too much for you. It's too much for the kids. It doesn't go well. You don't know why it hasn't gone well because there's too many variables <laughs> flying around and so on. Um, so if... I, I don't know, I don't know if this is the right approach. Would you like teachers to read your book and then think right I'm going to pick one of these core drivers to work on in the long term? or do you think is it manageable to try and to pick pick out something from from each of these core drivers? what, what are you hoping for, for for the long term to build this sustainable boost
1: in motivation? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure I, uh, I think change can only happen one step at a time. So, um, but I think if you just focused on one of the drivers at the expense of all the others, it would be a less efficient route to mm-hmm. success. And so, yeah, you know, one thing at a time, but maybe uh, work your way through the driver So you know, try to increase success, take one action to do that, take an action, you know, then to increase the of routines intentional routines in your classroom once you've got that nailed think about norms and belonging and, and then buy-in uh, ultimately you know in terms of for like the long long term one thing that the two things that could be useful to do in terms of like trying to help embed this understanding and action into like your your habits of the classroom first is to help your pupils try to understand it a little bit um, you know our, our pupils will eventually leave school. Um, our, you know the ultimate goal of a teacher is for your pupils to have a you know a, a lifelong passion for what you have taught them, and for them to continue to want to learn about it, um, and to be motivated by it. And helping them to understand what how motivation works and how they can motivate themselves when they need to, I think, can be a really powerful gift. But That's interesting.
0: Yeah, come on. Oh, sorry, Pep. I was just, just going to say, because I, I was going to chuck one bonus thing your way. And <laughs> I remember when I, when I was, uh, again, when I was doing all my reading about working memory and all that, I thought to myself, all right, this is great for teachers to know, but it's also super useful for for students to know themselves, you mm-hmm. know, about cognitive overload and about the importance of retrieval to strengthen long-term memories and so on and so forth. Well, is, my, my instinct reading your book was perhaps it's not as useful to share these kind of motivational drivers with students as it is the the kind of memory the the way memory works the reason being it might kind of Reduce the effectiveness of any of the strategies that, that you're doing as a teacher. So, I'll give you an example. Like, if it's blatantly obvious that you're trying to develop norms in the classroom to lead to high levels of motivation, if pupils know that, might it kind of lessen the effects? Same with perhaps buy in. If, if you've told students about these core drivers and then you start, you know, whether it's you know whatever you're doing to try and improve buy-in they're like oh you're only doing this to motivate us does that then make it almost kind of a an extrinsic motivator as opposed to the intrinsic that we need but then as i'm talking to you i'm thinking as you say this will be super useful for kids to know what is going to drive their motivation for just for later life this is be super useful for 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 anybody to know so can you see there's a potentially a bit of a contradiction there and where do you fall on that should we be telling students about this on or just doing it if makes yes
1: yeah, wonderful tension to to, to 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 bring up um and yes i i i reckon you probably would diminish some of the effects by you know withdrawing the veil as it were <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. like yeah showing the showing the uh, the mechanics behind the magic but not not hugely and the the benefits the long-term benefits of helping pupils understand how their motivation works probably outweigh what you would lose in that mm. short term and i think like that's you know really is like the helping pupils to understand how to manage their own behavior influence their own behavior in the future and um, it's just a wonderful gift we you know we, we, we as a species we rely way too much on willpower uh, you know the classic new year's resolutions that, <laughs> that last you know a few weeks and then fail like it's as a species we we we, we have like failures of self-regulation and motivation all the time. And so giving pupils the, the gift of being able to motivate themselves towards those goals that are important to them in their lives, I think is a really important thing and probably worth sacrificing a little bit of motivation in the short term for
0: fantastic superb well last question peps now i'll tell you what i'm looking for here i'm looking for a world exclusive right? so whenever uh, when and the best i've had on this when doug lamov was on the show he announced that he was started work he started work on teach like a champion three So I'm, I'm after something as big as that right so what uh, what are you turning your attention to next because you've quite a series of books right so i'm just gonna i just flip to the back Cover of this, where you've got all your books listed. We've got expert teaching, motivated teaching, memorable teaching, and lean lesson planning. What What's book number five going to be on? Perhaps have you <laughs> any idea yet?
1: Craig, book number four has not been. <laughs> the publication book, date for book number four, I think, is currently May twenty twenty two. Which is expert <laughs> teaching. So if you want, if you <laughs> if you want the next one, we're looking at you know we're looking at like twenty twenty five. <laughs> and I can
0: so I, I, my expert teaching that's locked in is that right two two years time that is
1: locked in, like two years time is my you know my hope <laughs> we we shall see you know don't hold me to that um but I've already like um you know as with many of these things I'm sure you've experienced the same you know you get to the end of one book and you realize that you've you know there's so many other things that you've figured out about something else that it's yeah. uh it's like so this expert teaching is ready, is like like boiling or itching <laughs> to get out to be like you know, <laughs> to be turned into ten thousand words and then like sculpted, <laughs> sculpted down to sorry, turned into a hundred thousand words of notes and then sculpted down to ten thousand words of like ultra concise prose. So um yeah, that's that's probably the next thing on the horizon. Beyond that, uh we still just have to see
0: fantastic and i I can book you on for the the trilogy in two years time to talk about expert teaching
1: right is that okay let's just make it three playing the same
0: (laughs) (laughs) fantastic well Peps, as ever it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thanks so much for your time today
1: brilliant cheers greg
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with Pep's McRae. He's good, isn't he? I absolutely love that conversation, you know. And motivation's been one of those topics that that keeps bubbling up in prayer conversations that we've had. And um, we talked about it with Nick Rose as one of the really early episodes about 4 years ago. And it also keeps popping up whenever we talk about teaching and I asked uh, teachers to talk about their planning process and describe lessons. We often talk about um, motivation, engagement, and so on. But to have a, have an entire episode dedicated around it, um, I've I just been something I've been waiting for for ages. And, and Pep's the way you can distill something so complex and turn it into really actionable things. And yeah, I, I'm just in awe of it. So I, I absolutely loved it. And I hope you did too. I also think potentially this is one of those episodes that could be shared with non-maths colleagues because there was very little maths chat going on whatsoever. That always disappoints me a little bit. But this is very much something that I think is applicable to teachers of all subjects and all age ranges as well, whether it's primary school through to secondary through to through to college or even university. So in terms of takeaways, the first thing I just wanted to just mention again was I love Pepsi's take on motivation in the sense that it determines what students pay attention to and then links in with Willingham's Insight and what was the focus of, um, of Pep's previous book, that what students are paying attention to is the thing that they're most likely to remember. And it's fascinating. Um, I remember when I first came across Willingham's Insight, um, well, that, that's that's who I attribute it to anyway, that memory's the residue of thought and what students are paying attention to is what they're most likely to remember. I um, mean it changed my world. The, that was really the thing that kick-started my mid-career crisis that led to my first book and, and so on and so forth. But at no stage did I ever think, well, what determines what students pay attention to? And my focus had always been on um, me as a teacher making sure I provide the right materials, re- reduce distractions in the room and so on and so forth. But then, of course, I can't control what's going on in students' heads. Ultimately, they make the decision what they're paying attention to. They can be looking at a sheet of questions, but not thinking about them. So what determines whether they are paying attention and focusing and thinking? Well, that's where motivation comes in. And such a simple insight, but, but such a powerful one. And it, it, Again, it just makes me realize what an important piece of the, the mysterious complex puzzle of learning that motivation really is. Um, I wanted just to mention briefly uh, fun and rewards. I thought that was interesting that um, Peps' distinction that they are perhaps drivers of extrinsic motivation, perhaps they have a short-term impact, but where possible we should try and remove them as quickly as possible. Uh, again, as, as Peps mentioned himself, this isn't to say that they don't have a, an important and powerful role to play. We've all been there trying to motivate a student in that in the short-term to get to kickstart that that feeling of success, to get them onto this virtuous cycle between success and, and motivation and so on, but yeah, in terms of a long-term strategy, I've certainly experienced that myself, as I described in the conversation. And um, fun and rewards perhaps aren't where we need to be focusing our attention, and instead it's on these core drivers. So I just wanted to say a, a couple of things here, just to build on what we were saying in the conversation. The first um, success is the, the first core driver: success. That for me has been my focus over the last few years, and if I can get my students feeling successful, I think a lot of motivation takes care, for it, takes care of itself, particularly if I inherit a class who've had perhaps a negative experience of mathematics in the past for whatever reason, or an individual student who's had a bad experience, their confidence is low. Trying to trying to sell them on the dream that this is going to be useful for them um, in the outside world, I don't think works. Trying trying to sell them on the dream that this is for a fun thing to do, I don't think works. What for me the most effective thing is if I can show them that they can be successful. If I can carefully choose activities, carefully design my instruction in a way that those students, perhaps for the first time, of so for, for many of them, can feel actually I'm getting something. Then all of a sudden they're much more willing to put in the effort to try a bit harder next time, and we get this virtuous virtuous cycle that I mentioned before. So, yeah, success for me is is the number one to get right, and it goes back to like a a, a revelation for me that that I, that I came to a few years ago, and that. I should be planning for success not planning for for motivation not planning for engagement and it's such such a simple insight but it it really turned on its head my my planning process no longer do i look for those bright shiny resources now i think what are the activities what are the sequence of questions what are the worked examples that are gonna that are gonna help this make sense to my students and therefore help them start to feel and be successful and as we mentioned with peps I think that's where all the research into growth mindset and, and grit and resilience and all the emphasis um, in schools on that, sometimes I worry that, that, that success gets forgotten. And for me, that's a key part of it. You, you can't be resilient. You can't have grit. You can't have a growth mindset without either some prior experience of success or some belief that you're going to be successful going forward. That's my, my view anyway. Um, I also wanted to mention just a few of the other core drivers so routines is a fascinating one and um, I like the, the, the framing of routines that once students are into this routine they have to think less about what they're doing or why they're doing it and can think more about the actual thing if that makes sense so they don't have to worry about what are my expectations when, I, when I'm doing this am I allowed to speak to the person next to me how do I set my workout what does this look like and so they forget all that and it's more than turn, switching on and thinking about the content itself. Now, I'm a little bit obsessed with routines. Um, when I talk about my model of a learning episode and we, we talk about things like example problem pairs, um, particularly intelligent practice, SSDD problems, uh, low-stakes quizzes, embedded into all of those are routines. Low-stakes quizzes run the same way every single time with the confidence score, with the uh, with the projecting the full work solutions on the board. Uh, works examples work the same way every single time with the five stages, silent teacher, narration, read the maths, your turn and show call. Intelligent practice works the same way every time with reflect, expect, check, explain. And the reason I do that is exactly for the reason Pep's saying. Then my students don't have to think as much about the structure, how the activity runs. They can think more about the actual core content, the big idea. So I really like that, that this this emphasis on routines. And that's why I'm willing to invest quite a bit of time early on with a class when I'm introducing them to these structures and these routines, even if it means in the short term, we don't make as much progress as perhaps the class down the corridor, in the long term we're going to be reaping the rewards because these routines these structures are going to bubble up time and time and time again i'm going to do them throughout every single learning episode so i really really like that but of course we've got to be cautious as as we pointed out with peps that the importance of novelty the potential motivating factor of of novelty in there but pepsi's point that actually it's it's the content that's going to be motivating it if the structure stays the same if we're always doing worked examples always doing intelligent practice that's fine as long as the content itself is is interesting to the students and again that ties into these other drivers of motivation particularly success and um, the other thing i just wanted to talk about was uh, was norms and another of the core drivers just That that emphasis, I I really liked it with with, where Peps was talking about feedback, and how actually the feedback can can kind of isolate a student potentially and make them think, well, I've got this wrong, but everyone else has got this must have got this right because he's he or she the teacher is, is is writing this feedback for me, and that's potentially problematic, and that's why as we discussed this idea of whole whole class feedback. We're actually we all in this together and this ties in with belonging as well is is potentially powerful and also just flipping things around such a simple but important message not saying three people didn't do their homework but 27 people did do their homework so the norm becomes doing the right behavior as opposed to highlighting the wrong behavior so we don't get into this dangerous tipping point and um, and the final thing, I mean, this is, I've done four of the five drivers here. Um, this takeaway is probably longer than Pepsi's book. And the final thing I just wanted to mention was uh, was buying. And this for me is a really, really important part of, of what I try and do these days. And and that is explained to students why we're doing what we're doing. So whether this is um, we're we're doing worked examples in a different way because we're doing silent teacher or we're doing practice in a different way because we're doing intelligent practice now or we're doing problem solving in a different way because we're doing these SSDD problems. Before I start any of that, I talk to students about exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I'll I'll tweet the language depending on the on the age of the class and my knowledge of them. But I may talk in terms of working memory, in terms of attention, in terms of long term memory, the importance of retrieval and the importance of building up fluency and so on and so forth. If if I, as I have done many times in the past, if I just dive in with a new idea, with a class, and I don't give them that background about why we're doing it, why we're approaching something different, it can really backfire. And particularly, and this is for me is the most interesting thing, it's often the classes and the students who are who have been successful at mathematics in the past who are most reluctant uh, to embrace new ideas because why would they what they were doing in the past has work so why now is sir doing this stupid thing where he's not talking to us during works examples or why are we having to reflect and expect and all this kind of stuff so if i can try and sell them on the dream of why we're doing it And then build that into a routine and then get them feeling successful. So all the things that we've talked about before and then celebrate the majority of the kids who are doing it to build the norm, then the motivation starts to come in. So what I like about these core drivers is that, as Pep says, you can turn the taps on on many of them for all the different things that we do um, in the lesson. And they should all be kind of feed off each other to build up these levels of motivation. Anyway, I would strongly recommend uh, snapping up Pepsi's book. I, I know I'm I'm kind of winding him up here about the, the length of it, the fact it's, it's 10,000 words, but it's purely because I'm jealous. I genuinely mean this. When I got the highlighter out, I was highlighting every single flipping word. And I just think, oh, I wish I could write like that. I wish I could write like that. It's it's a fantastic book and it adds to his, his other wonderful books. So I, I, I have no hesitation in strongly recommending it. Anyway, um, that's it. That's the end of the show. So all that remains for me to do is to thank, um, obviously, Pep's for giving up his time to come on the show. Um, To thank PodcastThemes.com for the lovely jazzy music. To thank our wonderful sponsors as well; they help keep the show going. And check out the link on the show notes page for more information there. Um, And also just to tease what's coming up next. So I think the next episode that I will release, unless things drastically change, will be the first of my Loughborough mini series of episode episodes about researchers, mathematics researchers at the Mathematics Centre at the University of Loughborough. Potentially, there's going to be ten of these Uh, shorter episodes where a researcher will talk about what they're doing why it interests them and crucially what are the implications for classroom teachers i'm dead excited about that Um colin foster's helped me put it together and um, there's oh, there is such a wide variety of interest uh, going on that, that people are researching i think it's gonna be absolutely fascinating so uh, so watch out for that as well anyway final thank you as ever is to you my lovely loyal listeners for keeping tuning in in your thousands and keeping me going on this if you want to support the podcast as ever the easiest thing you can do is to leave a review wherever you get your podcast from Um, next easiest thing you can do is recommend the podcast or or a specific episode to a colleague perhaps this is the one this could be the one to get them on board Um, and if you did want to make a contribution above and beyond i do have a patreon page but there's no pressure to do that whatsoever but a massive shout out to my uh, patreon supporters thank you so much your contributions do make a world of difference right i'll shut up now i'll take a leaf out of peps book i need to be a bit more concise Thanks so much for tuning in. You take care of yourselves and bye for now.